Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my local co-host, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. I'm glad to hear that. We have returned from shocks, we have recovered, we have healed, we have rejuvenated our psychic resources, and today we got to exercise our democratic franchise. We have the federal election here in Canada, which took me all of two and a half minutes because we run elections federally, and therefore they run on time, unlike the rolling disaster that you might see in other, uh, in other countries, mentioning no countries in particular. We had to pick our favorite color. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I was very sad as and, a... And much like board games, it really doesn't matter what color you play. <laughs> it always turns out the same anyway. Sorry, I digress. Oh, oh, hot take, hot take. I was merely going to point out that as a longtime Montreal resident, I was disappointed that the Rhino Party didn't have any local candidates. <laughs> the Rhino Party. The Rhino Party. I love me the Rhino Party. I, I don't know that I'd ever vote for them. But anyway, enough about politics. We are here to talk about board games. We are going to start off with our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. We're going to talk about games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to have our topic this week, which is competition and competitiveness. Well, before we get into the game we played last year, let's just do a Shucks debrief. Had a wonderful time at Shucks. So glad they invited us. We have another convention here in Toronto that it's much the same, where all the focus is on playing the games, right? There's not a huge dealer thing. It's not based on, you know, what dealers are going to be there or the shopping. It's all about playing games. And I found Shucks to be even better because they have this fantastic library right there, and they make it very, you know, uh, easy to use, right? You go and you pick what you want, you know, swipe your card, and it's not all this hassle to get a game out. And the library is now much, much better than it used to be, thanks to your generous donation of a copy of Tigers and Euphrates' also, library. Yeah, during the podcast. So if you haven't heard the podcast, we have a live podcast with Quinns. And talking about that, I want to double down on Quacks of Quiglinburg. <laughs> You're not even going to wait for a no, jurisdictional hook, right? No, You're just no, going to lay into well, it again I want, for no reason. I want to cover all the shuck stuff, right? Okay. So okay. It, was, it was our podcast, 88, we did with Quinns. It was a big uh, to-do there at live uh, at things. And I talked about Quacks and just the fact that it was amazing fun. If you have fun playing board games, play Quacks of Quiglinburg. You know, pulling out the chits with, with new game players. It was a fantastic experience. I had a great time playing it. It is a terrible game. I didn't even have a good time playing it. I wasn't there at the same table. I didn't say anything about Quacks at the time of, because normally you see, what, you see we have this format, right? And so we don't just talk about random games just because we feel like it. But I'm happy I'm happy to go along with your tyrannical whims. That's why we have a podcast in the first place. When I played Quacks, you can play Quacks in one of two ways, essentially. You can either play it sequentially, whereby you watch everyone draw from the bag, and there, there's lovely little suspense you get to egg people on, and the game lasts four hours. Or you can play so that everyone just draws from their own bag simultaneously, in which case nobody pays attention to what anyone else is doing. It's all multiplayer solitaire, and it becomes rote and repetitive anyway, and it's going to be faster, but there's still no meaningful decision, not much going on. So I I honestly, I I don't understand the appeal of things like that, because I I play lots of push-to-lock games where everyone is there egging people on. Raw is a great example of that. You start goading people into either bidding or not bidding. There are great moments of drama. Formula D is almost exactly like that. Sure. Also lasting three to four hours exactly. when it really shouldn't. I guess there's no decision space. Like even in deck builders, you have at least 10 cards to pick from this. You have four and then eventually now six. Now you're just repeating yourself well, longer. Well, I'm just saying the other note I have here, the, the, the audio quality in the live thing was so bad that I just want to repeat myself to make sure I get heard. <laughs> other things that happened, we, we met a whole bunch of listeners. Some listeners gave us some board games that hopefully we can talk about later on. A really interesting card game and an interesting soccer game coming up. We'll see. We'll try to get that to the table. Um, I believe it is called football. Foot a footboard. Yes, that's the name of the game. But the, yes. the sport, the sports ball in question, I believe, is oh. called football. Yes, true enough. And we also did a panel with uh, board game baggage. That they're they're called board game barrage, Walker. I yeah, but it felt like baggage carrying them through that panel. Am I going to need to download a rimshot sound effect? Actually, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> that would require a clever joke. No. All right. That being said, and they know I'm just joking. I hope you know I'm just joking. It was a fantastic panel, soon to be on our Patreon stuff. But also, just as a note, in case people have missed it, everyone who is a Patreon supporter, even if you normally don't have access to any of our uncut episodes or any of our bonus episodes, everyone who's pledged even at a dollar a month or higher has access to my travel logs, which are 
pretty inane and pretty stupid. Mostly me talking about food and how tired I am. But every day of Shucks, and even the day before Shucks, I did a little travelogue about the things that happened. The travelogue about the last day is mostly complaining about you, Walker. So, uh, But I, I, I uploaded it to our channel, so I know you'll never listen to it because you don't listen to our show, like most sensible people of the world. So there's lots of content to be had, and there's going to be more shortly. All right, that's all my information on Shucks. Anything for you to add? Let's talk about board games. So what we reviewed last year, our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intersecting via Eurus, is uh, we had a twofer, our first and so far only uh, twofer. We Well, we had a, a threefer once, a, a the bag-building bonanza. I always remember threefers, Mark. They're my favorite. Nice. <laughs> Except not. <laughs> so we talked about Yellow and Yangtze and Tigers and Euphrates, both from Reiner Knizia. Have you played Yellow and Yangtze since we reviewed it, Walker? Once. Yeah, I've played it two or three times. The problem is, and we kind of anticipated this in the review, it feels very different from Tigers and Euphrates, but at the same time, it still feels very similar. And, you know, it's not quite the direct sequel that some people make it out to be, but it is sufficiently similar that it's relatively rare that I feel specifically like playing Yellow and Yangtze. I will play Tigers and Euphrates at the drop of a hat, and I've played it probably a dozen times or so over the course of the past year, introduced it to new players, experienced players all the time. It's one of the first things we did at Shucks. It's a marvelous, marvelous game. It's my favorite game of all time, and so my inclination to play Yellow and Yangtze, you know, well, I'm like, it's, a, it's a tough ask. Yeah, well, my thing was going to be there are there are like one or two times while playing Tigers and Euphrates, I think of Yellow and Yancey and say, oh, I wish you know we could try that again because I remember doing this part. But almost throughout the entire playing of any Yellow and Yancey, it's always, I wish we were playing Tigers and Euphrates <laughs> instead. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Which, I mean, it's a shame because Yellow and Yancey is an excellent, excellent design. It's just not the best game of all time. And it's terrible to be standing in the shadow. Just as a further note, all of uh, all of Reiner Knizia's other masterwork tile-laying games, things like Samurai, things like Through the Desert, things like Stevenson's Rocket, I don't feel they suffer in comparison to Tigers and Euphrates in the same way because they are sufficiently different. Whereas Yellow and Yangtze is just similar enough to make me wish that I was playing Tigers and Euphrates instead, which is a shame. Well, there are some people that might not like Tigers and Euphrates and will find Yellow and Yangtze more bearable. That is true. It's more it's more accessible than Tigers and Euphrates. A lot of people feel Tigers and Euphrates feels punishing in a way that belies the fact that it's not quite as confrontational as other games that feel as punishing. So you're right. People should try Yellow and Yangtze if they respect Tigers and Euphrates but don't enjoy it. All right. So that's the game we reviewed about a year ago, Tigers and Euphrates. It's the newest uh, edition is by Fantasy, Fantasy Flight. Flight Games that I used to own, but now is in the Shucks library. Now on to the games that we played... In the last few weeks, <laughs> yes, the the time schedule has been a little is a little flexible at the moment. So I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about the game of Durant's that I ran at Shucks. I've been making noise about this, and sure enough, it, I had the pleasure of running it with a whole bunch of swaggers. And Durant's is a game masterless one shot role playing system about a prison colony, and it's all about power. It's about compromise. It's about hypocrisy, and the to me the benchmark of a good role playing game regardless of what kind of game it is whether it's D&D or the crunchier ones or whether it's the the game that's up did it make a good story did it tell a good story and do i feel like i was involved in telling of that story and speaking for myself the answer to both of those questions was yes this was uh, a question of the people in charge of the prison colony truly representing the banality of evil there was a brilliant representation of the colony's governor as being a well-meaning individual who was nonetheless chillingly incompetent in a way that was gen... It was like staring evil directly in the face. His response to most manner of conflict was, I have you scheduled in for Thursday, uh, get out of my office. And as a result, more or less due to... I, I think mostly due to his involvement. So there were people running around, uh, stabbing people, uh, setting fires, uh, shooting people with a shotgun in, in a couple of instances. And all of them, I could understand why they were doing it. It's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense based on what was going on at the time. The governor, on the other hand, I hated that governor. Even though he was kind of well-meaning, it was great. It was a wonderful story, just the kind of story I like, which is exactly the kind of story that Durant tends to tell. Had a lot of narrative ambiguity in, in just the right way. We, we're still not sure who was setting a lot of the fires, for example, that, that, that helped burn down the entire colony. I think it was the uh, indigenous aliens, but I'm, I'm not exclusively in charge of the story. Anyway, I had a great time. Everyone at the, at the table gave the necessary leap of faith because role-playing is hard. 
collaborative role-playing is yet harder, and game-masterless collaborative role-playing is, is harder still. And it was a big ask. People delivered. I had a wonderful time. That's Durant's by Jason Morningstar and Bully Pulpit Games. Their most famous game is probably Fiasco, which is entering its second edition. I recommend that too, but it's it's slightly less of, a, of a, the kind of story I like to tell. Marvelous, marvelous time. One of the reasons I went to Shucks. Glad it happened, Durant's. Yeah, if anyone ever hints around being a role-player of any time, I always tell them to look into Durant's. I've only played it once, and I wish I could have time to play it more. It is by far one of my, just under Paranoia. Paranoia being my number one role-playing experience, Durance being my ne- my second for sure. I got to play Aftermath. It's a game that's kind of coming out by Plat Hat Games. It's very much like Mice and, Myst- Mice and Mystics, so if you like Mice and Mystics, this will be something you might want to uh, check out. I'm very glad I played it because it's sort of like lost its, you know, shiny hype, right? I'm not so eager to grab it and, you know, play it anymore because, it, like I said, it's much more, just like Mice and Mystic, so nothing much new there. It has a very interesting map system, very much like uh, Brian Lockett's uh, newest releases where you turn the pages and the maps there and all the rules for that particular map are right beside it, so you just start playing right on the book itself. It has a really interesting card system where you dealt uh, a hand of cards that looks a little bit similar like normal cards, and what you do there is that they're all based on your types of skills. You're either doing a strength or a mind or a agility check of some kind. And so what you can do is either you can play all agility cards or all strength cards and you add up their numbers, or you can start off the test with one of those key cards, like a strength card or agility card based on the, the test. Say I play a two strength card for a strength test, then I can play any twos that I have. It doesn't matter what skill they're for, but they have to be twos. So it's interesting the way that works. But Once again, it's just more of the same as in Mice and Mystics or any other dungeon crawly type game. Move here, kill that thing. Move over here, get this thing. Get the Benny. Move on to the next thing. Nothing overly exciting. Well, the setting seems to be relatively striking. I haven't played the game, and it's it. uh, Mice and Mystics wasn't my taste, both mechanically and narratively. But you know, post-apocalyptic. Uh, anthropomorphic animals dealing with, you know, the art is striking at the very least. It is, and it does have this sort of uh, base-type structure where you have this big card that keeps track of how much, you know, how many people you have in your base and how much supplies. It's like this overall arcing, you know, keeping your, your people alive. So it might it might get more interesting the more you play it, but, you know, there you go. And that's Aftermath by Plaid Hat Games. And I couldn't help but notice that that format of using a book to set up the maps, which... It gives you much more flexibility and certainly helps with the setup and teardown. I've been seeing some prototype mock-ups of Gloomhaven scenarios working on the same principle. I was just about to say that when you when you continued was the fact. Can you imagine if Gloomhaven did that? Like you know, had the you know open up the book and just had. Well, I guess you'd have to have a much bigger book. You but, would, but the fact that that is by far the majority of the time sink of Gloomhaven is setting up the map, getting all the tokens out, getting everything set up. If you just open up a book and it was all ready to go, that would be amazing. It's true. Got to play a game called Mistea. Mistea is by Tabula Games. I had played one of their previous games, Barbarians the Invasion. And I have to say, having played both Mistea and Barbarians, they are establishing a niche of mechanically functional, overlong, unengaging Euro derivatives, which, you know, is a niche. Beautifully produced in both cases, although in the case of Barbarians the Invasion, uh, the art was uh, pretty bad in the sense of of boob-heavy barbarian, semi-naked goddesses and warlords and uh, chainmail bikinis and stuff, and more on that later. Mistea did not have this problem, and however, it was matched by a semi-incoherent theme, something-something guilds, something-something artifacts, something-something points. Maybe that was just my fault for not engaging with it enough. It's... Well, it was relatively reminiscent, actually, of Blood Rage, in that you had a player board where you had slots corresponding to various units. You can upgrade them, you can play cards and pay resources to upgrade them. But I have to say, based on the one playing, I, I'm not sure that the balance is quite there in terms of the benefit of going after toys versus the benefit of going after pure points. Because Mistea is one of those games where there's a lot of different things going on. You've got upgrades, you've got card effects, you've got different unit special abilities. You can go to have adventures, you can go trigger island powers, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, most of your points are going to come from territory bonuses. So mostly what it seemed like it was in your interest to do was just laboriously get all your units out, which was a a two-step, somewhat laborious process, spread them out, which in turn was a laborious process, and uh, get a lot of points, which is fine if that's the kind of game you're going to make, but then there's all this stuff that 
And, and whenever the cool stuff is at odds with the smart stuff, I'm always a little bit hesitant. That seems to be where Mistea was going. We played the short variant, as suggested by the uh, the designer. Maybe in the long the the long game, it makes more sense to ramp up in terms of of getting cool toys. So, in in interest of full disclosure, but the long game is indeed a long game. It would take about three hours or so, with, even with uh, the three players that we were playing, based on the the, the rate that the, that we were playing, and with a full set of four or five. Good lord, it would take a very 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 long time. It's one of those cases where the ninety to one twenty minutes on the box is, shall we say, optimistic to the point of mendacity. But I'm not particularly inclined to try the, the the longer one. Honestly, the clever bits were very reminiscent of Blood Rage in the sense of being able to upgrade your units and get cool toys and then show up on the map and then potentially fight, but then potentially not. So in terms of efficiency, in terms of cleanliness of the design, in terms of overall enjoyment, I thought that Mistea just didn't quite measure up. And that, so far, that's 0 for 2 as far as Tabula Games is concerned. So they're probably now fully off my radar in terms of things to check out. And that was my experience with Messiah. Mark and I both got to play Guards of Atlantis 2. It's going to be a game that's coming out in the future. Guards of Atlantis 1 is a game, it's what they call a tabletop MOBA, which is, if you know uh, League of Legends, it's a computer game where, you know, you have all these mindless minions, uh, you know, streaming out towards each other bases each other's base and you're sort of like you know supporting them attacking towers and trying to destroy the other the other base and what guards landis does is you play these you know super powerful characters you're going in and you're trying to support your minions and trying to advance them towards the enemy base so it, it seems way much cleaner than it was in the first edition many more heroes and a lot lot more abilities and so, Mark, what do you think of Guards of Atlantis 2? I love Guards of Atlantis, and I love all the improvements to the core system in Guards of Atlantis 2. In fact, that reminds me, I want to reach out to the designer and ask him, what rule systems from Guards 2 do you think can be backported to Guards 1 with no difficulty right away? Respawns have been changed. The way leveling up, leveling up has been changed a bit. I don't think that could be backported. But the way... Guardian kills have been worked changes a little uh, has been changed a little bit. Minion combat has been changed a little bit. Again, to make things streamlined, quicker, more engaging. I really liked the new characters that we saw, with the caveat that so we played we played a four player game. You and your partner were playing against my partner and I. Uh, basically, it was the uh, the Anglo's versus the uh, Francophones, and our characters just seemed easier to play. They just they're, they're and, they're, just, and they seem to synergize with each other. They seem to synergize with each other, and they seem specifically... And I don't know whether this was just fortuitous or just... It also seemed like our tricks were designed exclusively to counter your tricks. And it seemed like if I were in your position, I would have been frustrated. Now, one of the other players at the table commented that although he felt it was a challenge getting his character up, uh, gearing up, he it was a challenge he liked to repeat. It was one of those instances where... He played a character, wasn't able to make him work quite right, and say, so now I want to play him again right away. I really want to see how this works. What was your experience having a character that wasn't quite singing? No, exactly the same. Like, I had, okay. no, I had no problems with the way it was going. Just, like I said, the, the matchups between our two sides and the matchup between, you know, our team as well. Just, they just didn't seem to sync with each other. And, and learning the new system, definitely wish I had picked a different character. Based on my experiences with Guards 1, I am perfectly willing to believe the claim that it was just a function of the builds that we stumbled into, that with a little bit more experience with those characters, that indeed, given another matchup, we could instead we could indeed play the same four characters against each other in the same team setup, and it would be fine. And it would work balanced. Not that it was a blowout. It was actually a close game. We went to the last, uh, the, the, the last round, and we triggered the endgame. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this new set. As you say, the roster is going to explode, and a lot of the new characters look really interesting, and all the existing characters are going to be tweaked a little bit, partially by virtue of uh, lessons learned in game design, and also partially by virtue of the rules changes. So I can't wait for the further output of Wolf Designer. Wolf Designer, as far as I'm concerned, has an excellent track record. They've done Guards of Atlantis, they've done Warpgate, they've done Trickshot, and uh, I can't wait for everything they're putting out. It's very exciting. And that was Guards of Atlantis 2 by Wolf Designer. I played... A game with Walker called Blood on the Clock Tower. Yes. Let's we, talk we, about Blood on the Clock did, Tower. Did Walker. we play it? <laughs> okay. We experienced. Well, you certainly didn't play it, and I knew that coming in because you don't play well, social deduction. Well, games. no, I knew that coming in because yes. I've, I've played I've played games like this that yes. you can die in the first turn and and have no control over that. So I knew what I was coming into. <laughs> oh boy. No, 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 no. But no, no, it's true. Like, like I said, I've I've played. Uh, 
You played Town of Salem. You played Town Werewolf. of Salem. That's right. I played Town of Salem like um, probably hundreds of times. All right. Here's the thing. So let's address the first thing right off the bat. There's been some controversy online, both our benevolent hosts at Shut Up and Sit Down and from other people, about whether or not Blood on the Clock Tower is a werewolf derivative. I think it was settled quite neatly when at the start of the game, the person running the game, the storyteller, as they call it, the game master, as I will call him, said that this was basically like werewolf. So I'm willing, and he works for the company, so I'm willing to take his word for it. That it's a werewolf derivative. It looked like a werewolf derivative to me when I read the rules. It sounded like a werewolf derivative to me when it was explained to me. And it played like a werewolf derivative when I played it. So as far as we're concerned, I think that the, the, the jury is in and the matter's been settled. Do yeah. you agree? Well, I, I have no problem with that. There's many yeah, no, there's no. many games, as long as they, you know, say something in their rule book or sure. online, you know, giving a call out to the designer of werewolf. Well, in this case, it's a little bit more complicated because uh, some of it's apocryphal. But yeah, I don't, I don't think that being basically, you know, basically a werewolf version is a problem, right? I don't see this as a criticism. It's just a mere. It, it, it's a question of, of difference. Now, there are improvements over Werewolf, unquestionably, namely that when you are dead in Werewolf, you are expected to sit silently and wait for the game to end. In Blood of the Clock Tower, you are expected to continue participating. And the only sense in which you are neutered is your special power doesn't work anymore, and you can only vote once more over the course of the game. That is good, and in point of fact, if were I ever to play Werewolf again, I would probably try to backport that into a game of Werewolf. And I think you could do that without doing too much violence to the fundamental structure. Um, I, I would like to note, though... That just in terms of how our hobby has changed, we've talked a little bit about the evolution of the hobby, especially in talking about market saturation and things. I remember when uh, Ted Alsback at Bezier Games put out the first boxed edition of Ultimate Werewolf. Not one night Ultimate Werewolf, but Ultimate Werewolf Simpliciter, which was his curated version of 60-ish roles and the best rule set that he'd cobbled together. Because Werewolf has been played by thousands of people many, 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 many thousands of times. It's been a, a, a con favorite Play-by-mail has been going on forever, and it's a huge deal. So this was this was a curated werewolf. And I believe that when, when it was first offered uh, over 10 years ago, it was a boxed set for something like 12 bucks in SRP. And I remember comments on BoardGameGeek saying, oh, the audacity of this guy charging money for an open-source game. Ha ha ha, what a fool. And now we have Blood of the Clock Tower, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is what it is. Um but I, just just an interesting anecdote. Again, I'm not taking a stance on this overall position. I think that good game design, even if it's just curation, deserves to be rewarded. But So, what did you think of Blood on the Clock Tower, Walker? Well, I couldn't tell you. I didn't get to play. Like we said, I got killed in the first night. <laughs> no, but overall, it played much like those other games. And I enjoy those other games more. Sorry, I shouldn't say other games. I enjoy Town of Salem more because you get a game done in about 15 minutes as opposed to an hour and a half that that game took. It was it was closer to two hours actually, but yeah, it was it was it was ninety to one twenty minutes definitely. Uh, most of the people there had played before. We were newbies, as were a couple of other people. And uh, <clears throat> here here's the thing about what a lot of people are saying about Blood on the Clock Tower that I don't that I don't understand. Most of the time, when I read impressions that I don't agree with, I can understand where they're coming from. We talked about this in the context of tapestry, right? I understand why people say what they say about tapestry. One of the things that people say about Blood of the Clock Tower is that it leads to great stories. And they talk about how the person running it is a storyteller, and they talk about all these things. And honestly, I would like to push back on this notion a little bit. What Blood of the Clock Tower sometimes presents is moments. Stories, I don't think so. Because in terms of narrative, in terms of story, it's the same story over and over. I thought a thing, I was wrong to think the thing. Or I made them think a thing that was wrong. Those are the kind of stories you get. And honestly, to be entirely frank... Those moments are genuinely exciting. I had a great time playing Blood on the Clock Tower. But, number one, I get this those same moments of, extor- of excitement or quote-unquote storytelling, if you want to put it that, playing the Resistance, which is an actual logic puzzle with determinative information, as opposed to Blood on the Clock Tower, which is, well, I have this piece of information from the game system. It could be falsified because I'm the drunk and everything I know is wrong. It could be falsified because I was poisoned. It could be falsified because there's a Vortox and all the information is wrong. Blah, 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 blah. So all these nested inferences based on bizarre counterfactuals and strange things. So it's less of a logic puzzle and more a function of navigating a sea of chaos, which sometimes I like in games like Cosmic Encounter, so I'm being a bit of a hypocrite here, but when it comes to social deduction, I'd rather there be actual, you know, deduction. And then the second thing I'd just like to point out is, I yes, I had a very, very good time. We were in a room with 12-ish very charismatic players, 
And we had somebody there whose job it was to run a game for our amusement. We had a storyteller there whose job it was to make the game run. Under those contexts, I could, ima- I could imagine any number of dozens of activities that would have given me equal pleasure. Seriously. And non-game type activities. Because again, the amount of effort and labor involved, there was somebody there whose job it was to run the show. Now, some people will take to that role. And if, you are, if you're hearing this, and I'm sure you've heard a lot about Blood on the Clock Tower, and if that sounds like your jam, go forth. And I'm sure you'll have a great time running the show. But as a gamer, I couldn't help but think that this was a lot of wasted effort, given that I, I, I've had great times playing Werewolf with people. Uh, one of my best uh, gaming memories, actually, was a room full of non-gamers at a party for, for some other period. And they're like, hey, we've all decided spontaneously we'll want to play a game. Surely there's something you can just pull out of your ass. And my first response was, no, what are you talking about? And then I'm like, wait a minute, we could all play Werewolf. And that's what we did. And we had a great time. And I just ran the show and I had fun there because I was just introducing people to gaming. But as a gamer playing Blood on the Clock Tower, uh, here's the thing. I, you know, like I was playing The Resistance or any other social deduction game, I tried to reconstruct what happened and why. And all the decision points, all the major turning points, all the major inflection points were determined by the storyteller. The game went the way that it did because of the storyteller's choices. Because the storyteller makes choices in the game. They decide what happens. And the storyteller decided uh, who died in several instances. Them themselves, not player agency. A player input was involved, but the ultimate output was decided exclusively without second guessing and without scrutiny by the storyteller. And that's why the game went the way that it did, because he wanted to draw things out, because he wanted the game to end close. And he didn't really care who won. He cared that the game wanted to go on a, on a... So it was on rails a little bit. And I didn't like that part either. So It's not as though he broke any rules nope. to do that. No, 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 and no. That's no. all part of the game. That's the game. That's how the game works. And so I felt that it was... Uh, it gave me kind of the same vibe as those murder mystery party games. Those actually have stories, for what it's worth. But they're similarly also on rails. Here, the rails may differ a little bit more based on the prerogatives of the storyteller. I also couldn't help but wonder in the back of my head, what happens if the storyteller sucks, right? Or makes a mistake. Or makes a mistake. A mistake in the rules, a bad call when they have to uh, exercise a little bit of discretion, or they're just not engaging or charismatic and they're not able to command the floor and be able to manage people the way that they can. Because there was a lot of management going on. You have to manage the tempo, you have to manage the flow. Anyhow, all of this to say, I had a great experience and I'm probably never going to seek it out again. And I think that there's enough information out there, and there's an audience for for Blood on the Clock Tower, make no mistake. And for people who want it, I encourage you wholeheartedly to go find out uh, like-minded individuals, and you're going to have a blast with this thing. But it ain't for me. Agreed. 100%. Finally got a Kickstarter in. See on Tempor. Waited for it. Gigantic box. Look at the unboxing. Tons of plastic. Yet another giant bucket of plastic game, you know, that we said that we're never going to get, you know, giant co-op. You know, one versus the game. Well, in you, fairness, you pledged for it two years ago. Yeah, or well, right? yeah, so. true enough. Here we go again. But anyway, that being said, there are reasons why I I pledged for this, and I like all the reasons that I did. I.e., there is a time wheel where you the scenario will tell you where to put your characters on the time wheel. Depending on what actions you do, they're either more complicated or less complicated, and you move a certain amount of time around the wheel. And then when the time you know moves around to your token again then you get to do another action and or the enemies it worked out pretty well there was a couple times where unfortunately all the enemies were on the same thing so it you know led to a big bog down or a couple times we were just we flubbed the rules a little bit because it was our first game but i think that will all work its way out the second reason i got this game was the skill tree there's games like diablo or uh, exile i think it's called where it has these you know huge spider webby skill trees and, you know it's not that big in this game but the fact that it's there I really liked how it worked. You get your, you know, your first skill and then they build out to other skills and you, you know, plan your character out and, you know, you get to build a character. On that, you have to build your character. This is not a game that you're going to pull out. It's like, oh, the guys are over. Let's play a game. We're going to play Cyan Tempor. That is not this game. This game was designed for a particular crowd. You are going to say, we are going to play Cyan Tempor for the next couple of months. You have to. You don't have to do the whole campaign, but you know you don't start with any skills. You don't get any of the goodies unless you know you're going to put in the work and start playing. You know multiple games of this, and I'm interested to see where it goes. I'm hoping the story you know pans out and it's there. The map is very interesting, and the fact that you get uh, resources to build up your ship, make your ship cooler, make you know your 
you know, your whole history as, you know, you're traveling through space trying to, you know, uh, kill all the, you know, local people because they're obviously in your way. Mark pointed it's out. even worse than that. Maybe you'll put, maybe you'll more, but, but I have, I've got into the story, you know, mostly, but I think that would be great if it's sort of like this, you know, overlooking view where you're sort of played out as heroes, but in fact, you're, you know, you are the villains. If that's the way that they purposely went, that's going to be amazing. I'm I'm curious about Sin Tempora. Having played it the one time, the rulebook is not the best, so we flubbed a number of rules, and also we just flubbed a number of rules. I'm looking forward to trying it again, but I'm not particularly optimistic for a number of reasons. One of them is, although the miniatures are gorgeous, a lot of the, in, in the standard way, some of the some of the female aliens look like female aliens, and some of them look like pinups with uh, metal breastplates that are push-up bras. I'm a, I'm sick to death of that, and especially since a lot of the other character designs are really really cool and visually compelling, and right up my sci-fi alley, I find that very tiresome. So, that's the first thing. The second thing is, I'm very curious, as you say, to see if the narrative pans out because literally what the story is, you are here trying to find a new planet on which to settle. You find a planet with natives in it, and so you decide to terraform the planet out from under them and they're like hey uh, we, we, uh, we live here no and the 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 quote-unquote heroes are like ah now we're just gonna shoot you all instead which you're obviously the bad guys it's, you don't even have to engage in any sort of like colonialist narratives or orientalism or anything no 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 it's pretty straightforward you show up and like we are gonna terraform this planet nobody's here uh guys hello over here it's like nobody here that matters <laughs> exactly but but my final concern is even independently of the fact that I'm kind of sort of done with campaigns, if a game is going to have that kind of spiraling sense of, of skill progression, I want things to happen at a regular clip, and I want the individual play sessions to be relatively brief. In my it, So to a certain extent, the ideal version of this is, is Kingdom Death Monster. After every adventure, a lot of changes happen, and you can knock out a couple of adventures in, in uh, when they're not very, very, very quick, but they're certainly not two hours per session. Gloomhaven is a little bit too slow on the feedback end for my taste, but you do get to make character decisions right at the start of the game, which is not something that's true of Sin and Tempora. You just start out with vanilla stuff. Also, the character variety out the, out the box is on, there's only the four stock character. Anyway, so I'm going to be trying it some more, uh, but mostly it just seemed, in terms of the actual gameplay, which we haven't really discussed yet, and I think there's a reason for that, it's just your standard, everyone moves a couple of spaces, you roll a whole bunch of dice for a whole bunch of ineffectual attacks, uh, you join up in a scrum, not a whole lot moves, it's not very dynamic. That was my experience. Well, true enough. That being said, I played a second time and played the first scenario, and it was much different, right? Because they all, oh. you know, because you, you know, everything had one hit point and no armor, where you and I just sort of, you know, jumped. They have this interesting... uh mechanic where you can do sort of like if you're playing a campaign scenario and it's too hard you sort of have filler scenarios that you can do sort of like to build your characters up ah, so you draw a card and we were do, grinding we were grinding that's I the see. word i'm looking for so we did a grinding mission interesting and it was a, a you know a level two so we know we're we're we were the guys were a little bit more powerful so it was harder for us to kill them whereas the second game i played we were knocking guys out quite easily oh so it was much more fun and Why do you save the good versions for people who are not me? Because I want to second what you said, because the rule book is really bad. <laughs> okay, then. And there is, a, there is a thing. So if you guys want to keep track of how many different, different ways, ways we pronounce it? I pronounce it. Yeah. It's oh, pretty, both of us. We're both guilty of this. I know. It's, it's going to be a thing. My Latin's rusty. There you go. We played Airland and Sea again. I've been meaning to get this to the table again. A very quick two-player game by John Perry at uh, Arcane Wonders. And I really, really, really like Airland and Sea. Every time I play it, I like it more. It's got one of the elements from Blue Moon, Blue Moon being my favorite card game of all time, where in Blue Moon, it's not winning the fight, it's knowing when you should retreat. It's knowing that, well, I could keep going, but I should stop. And Airland and Sea works the same way. Generally speaking, and so far in my experiences, very few encounters of Airland and Sea go the distance. Usually it's a question of looking at your hand, looking at what's on the table, making inferences about the deck, because it's a very, very tight deck of cards in, in Airland and Sea, only 18 cards, and figuring, eh, no, I can't do this, I'm out. And so, and it can make all the difference. A bad draw, bad situation, bad couple early decisions. So what, what this does is it encourages risk-taking at the opening, because you know that if if it pans out, you can go the distance. If it doesn't, you don't. It encourages the kind of heuristics that I like. You don't have to know the deck, but you can just remember a couple of very powerful things. I really like your land and sea. It's super compelling, and it's probably uh, going to be one of my two-player card games of choice going forward. The biggest part in that game is the the amount of time it takes to play it. 
It is a perfectly short game. It doesn't like overstay its welcome. It plays very quickly, and I'm worried that there'll be an expansion that will. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If they if they add any more cards, that it sort of like blows the whole game out of. I agree. I would not want to see more cards. And the other the other great thing about it, even just in terms of not even in terms of its length, but in terms of the play experience, given that sometimes you withdraw very early and sometimes you withdraw later, you're not doing the same thing over and over and over again. You are doing repeated battles, but the tempo of them is all over the map, and so they all feel different. You only have a couple of pitched battles, and those are the ones that are intense, and then there are the ones where it's just like, ah, that didn't work out, I'm gone. True, and the combos you can get off with just an 18-card deck Absolutely. is really interesting 100%. the way they did I love it. All right, the last game I'm going to talk about is a game that we got for free at Shucks. It's called Mr. Lister's Quiz Shootout. Did you actually play that? Yeah, we did. I it's like, <laughs> because here in here in Canada, we have Thanksgiving at at a at a at a different time than than the people in the states. We're efficient. Do. We get it out of the way quick. Exactly. Well, because we don't want any holidays in November, right? That'd be bad. That'd be bad. Why well, have a holiday every month like everyone else? We'll just keep <laughs> we'll keep November devoid of all of all holidays. But anyway, so. Like what happens at most uh, get-togethers around the holidays, you you know pull out the the, the party games. So I had a great game. I've picked up another copy of Wits and Wagers Las Vegas. Everyone loved it. Anyway, on to Mr. Lister's Shootout. I love it because it's apparently based on actual historical thing where back in, you know, 1600s, this guy had a bar. He was getting tired of it being shot up. It wasn't, because... the, it wasn't the 1600s. Bars didn't get <laughs> shot up in the 1600s, Walker. You didn't have aquabusiers wandering into bars in the United States of America so, shooting up bars. No, it's back then. So, you know, whatever. And then, anyway, so he's tired of I people. would like this fuse and I will blow you up. Just he, stand he, here and wait he, for five he, seconds. He was, he, was, he, was, he, was, he was tired of people clubbing up his bar. I, I want to hear you talk more about history. I, I would love to hear a Walker Talks About History podcast. This would be, this would be wonderful. It's fascinating. I know as I just, you know, pulled numbers out. Of, anyway, he was tired of people showing up his bar mark. This is a story I'm trying to tell. Thank you for, you know, <laughs> deflating the whole thing. I, I don't want to tell it now. And uh, so instead of people shooting up his bar, uh, he's he was known for having this quiz where he would ask, uh, ask the two parties a question that had multiple answers, like, you know, what makes up a football uniform or how many different kinds of, you know, common dreams are there, those type of questions. And he would go back and forth between the two sides and whoever couldn't come up with an answer, whoever got the most answers would win. And it would diffuse the situation as opposed to, you know, murder, death and destruction. And this game plays out much the same. It works very well. You know, break everyone breaks up into two teams. You know, you ask the question. They write either they say to write down the answers, but it's much easier just to get having to think of up. And they go back and forth three times, and they try to get points. And at the bottom, there's a question that is much like wits and wagers. There'll be a question based on like a, a number, and then you know everyone writes down a number, and whoever gets closer gets a, a free point. It just worked out really neat. Some of the, even while we we're waiting at Shucks, we broke out some of the questions. Some of them were interesting and compelling. So. I think overall it's for a party game it is you can't can't be beat. I'm not a good judge of these things because when it comes for to trivia most questions strike me as arbitrary. I always half the time when presented with a trivia question my immediate response is could you define your terms? I'm not really sure on on what you're going at. But I have an important question about your Thanksgiving playing of this game Walker. When playing Mr. Lister's whatever whatever shootout a lit, uh, quiz shootout quiz shootout, did you deploy the plastic mustache? Of course, Mark. Okay, good. It's not Mr. Lister's quiz shootout unless Mr. Lister has his mustache. Okay. Final game I'd like to talk about is a game called Siege Storm, specifically Siege Storm Siege Mode. Siege, siege, siege on, from, on the siege of, of the siege of the siege mode. You gotcha. moding the sieging and yeah. I have been, I have a bit of a weakness for Magic the Gathering clones. You know, two-player card battling games where I have this 4-3 creature and it's going to go attack your 2-7 creature or whatever. And I really like Epic. Uh, I have occasional fond memories of Codex, my Sterling games. And Siege Storm, the, specifically the Siege mode, is a solo slash co-op game that shares some superficial resemblance to Magic type structure. It is not that game. It is not a, the Magic clone that I was looking for. Instead, it is a game where all your cards are creatures, but they can be played in a multiple of different ways, but you basically enter them into a queue, and once they reach the end of the queue, and there's more or less no way for the opponent to interrupt the queue, when they get to the end of the queue, they do something. Usually a little bit of damage, and then some special effect, or, or some other thing. 
I find it mechanically clean, and as far as solo games go, I think that the AI is pretty good. I quite like what that is. I'm still at the point where I'm trying to get internalized the ways in which it is really not the thing that I was hoping it was going to be. And number two, uh, again, I don't know what happened, but this is a rhetorical question for you, Walker. When did fantasy artists get together and all agree that angels are to be represented like Victoria's Secret angels with uh, metal push-up bras? Because, again, once again, Siege Storm... All the factions, I think. No, not all of them. Some of them are just like swamp people. But two of the factions are just, it's just ridiculous fantasy artwork of the, of the standard type. And I just, I'm tired and I'm done with it. So for that reason alone, I'm probably not going to go back to Siege Storm. But it is, it does have some interesting stuff going on. Uh, the, the different card effects uh, are pretty impressive in terms of their overall variety. I've played two of the different bosses. The two bosses do feel relatively different, but it wasn't exactly what I was looking for in terms of a solo experience, and that is not the game's fault, but I find the artwork's tiresome. That is the game's fault, so I'm probably pretty done with Siege Storm, Siege Mode, Siege, Siege, Siege. Those are the games we played in the last few weeks. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I'm going to start talking about a game called Barrage. It was a Euro-type game where it had this water supply and it sort of went down. And the only reason I haven't got a chance to play it yet, the reason why I'm talking about it is that there is a fifth-player expansion on Kickstarter. And I found it very interesting, the fact that it seems as though they're not using it as a store. I scanned this Kickstarter page and nowhere can I find a place where you can pay or pledge for the base game. Fascinating. It is only for the people who got the uh, original game to get replacement parts for apparently there was a mm. trouble with the wheel and there components was huge controversy with the components. So there's, and they're all zero. It says people who have already pledged, you know, oh, you pledge with your original email. All of these things cost zero. If uh, you're new people buying the fifth player expansion, you, this is how much you'll pay for all of these extras and or replacements, but nowhere I could be totally wrong. I might be lying. I went over the page several times and nowhere could I find a place that you could buy the base game. I have not been involved in the ongoing barrage controversies. There's been issues with fulfillment. There's been issues with shipping. There's been issues with the components themselves. There's been issues with the fact that the retail copies are vastly superior to Kickstarter copies. There have been issues upon issues. But if the company is trying to do right, if Cranio is trying to make up for their mistakes and take care of the original backers, then my hat's off to them. A little bit of follow-up from uh, past weeks, when Walker utterly blew my mind with news about Scott Pilgrim Miniatures The World, the upcoming Scott Pilgrim Miniatures game, I had to do some digging, and turns out it is uh, designed by Erica Bujoris, who is a Canadian living in Toronto, and she is also going to be publishing a Steven Universe game called Steven Universe Beachapalooza Card Battling Game, whereby it is based on uh, one of the great Season 1 episodes of Steven Universe, where Steven summons clones of himself from different timelines and then watches them die. Uh, spoiler alert. This is a kid's show, remember. Uh, this, is, this is also the show that had a body horror episode where uh, Steven's body was overtaken by a roiling mass of semi-sentient cats that were part of his own body that he had to systematically eradicate through a car wash. That was... Kid show, kid show. I was going to say, that totally makes sense. Uh, 100%. Anyhow, uh, what I want to know, though, uh, so first of all, I'd just like to note that Erica Bujoris is now my favorite designer, despite the fact that I've never played anything by her. And now I want to know, is there going to be a crossover pack whereby you can play Scott Pilgrim Beachapalooza? Because Scott uh, Steven Universe Beachapalooza is about making a band, and so obviously you want the Scott Pilgrim characters to be able to form a band using the same mechanics. My money's on Shatterband. They're my favorite. Maybe Crash and the Boys, but it depends on whether it's pre or post takeover. So it's the boys yeah. and Crash or Crash and the Boys. And then we're going to have to have Steven Universe Miniatures The World, where you get to play the miniatures combat game with the Steven Universe minis. Clearly, Erica Bruyoros needs to do this. She needs to get on this. Mark, 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 you need you need to calm down. I think I think I need to take twenty percent off the top. About twenty, yeah, about twenty percent off the top. I am super excited for both of these <laughs> games. Those are they are two of my favorite media properties. I cannot wait. <laughs> I hope she does it right. I hope so, too. Sorry. I hope she does right by them, is what I meant to say. Sure. My last piece of news is yet another light Kickstarter thing. If you like cute and adorable, check out a Kickstarter called Calico. You will not be disappointed. It is quilts and kittens, and you can't go wrong. <laughs> Final bit of news, and this is the last time I will be mentioning it this year. 
October 27th is Arkhipov Day. Vasily Arkhipov in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis saved the entire world from a nuclear holocaust, which would have destroyed human life as we know it. He deserves your recognition. On October 27th, I hope you will join me in celebrating Arkhipov Day. And that is the news and why it does matter. On to the topic, which is competition and competitiveness. Like we normally do, Mark and I send each other the topic one way or the other. And that is all the discussion we have on it. All we give each other is the title. I have this whole Venn diagram with bullet points that can steer the conversation in whatever way it goes. It's, it's, it's a thing. It's going to happen. It's going to be fantastic. I'm at your disposal, Walker. What are your thoughts? Well, this is a good topic. Thanksgiving coming up for our southern neighbors and other holidays coming up December for everybody else. So during the holidays, like I said, is lots of games being played with family. And sometimes there is going to be some sort of conflict or competitiveness or, you know, grudges or what's the word I'm looking for? Spilkus? Spilkus. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, long going battles. Uh, grudges? Grudges. Gr- grievances? Grievances. Yes. All of those things. All right. Let's just go on about right right off the top. I'll go into this thing. This is, I used to have a group about 25 people that came over to the house. We played uh, Games Workshop games, uh, Fantasy Battle in 40K. And then when the tournament scene started, it was almost immediately, like probably, you know, that month that uh, we just stopped playing. I have not played hardly since. My stuff's been in storage. And it's not just me. It's everyone, all the core people from that group. And it's just sort of dismissed and turned into what the board game group is now. Because we never played competitively. We didn't care. Some, some, one or two of the people did there and then, and the rest of the local steves, uh, seen all of a sudden, you know, worried about winning, worried about points, worried about, you know, having the best list and winning all the time. So it sort of destroyed that group, which was unfortunate. Here's, here's the thing I've been thinking about lately. Most of the time, the way it's presented in popular discourse, and by popular discourse, I mean in board games discourse, which is say not popular and rarely discourse, it is presented as though being oriented towards competition is the same thing as being competitive. Competitive being an outlook, a mindset, a desire to win above all else, internalizing that goal. But to my mind, those two don't need to go together. They often do. Being oriented towards competition, being focused towards winning, and really caring about winning are two different things to me. And there's the famous Reiner Knizia quote, which, for the life of me, I'm not sure I understand. But I think he's talking about what I'm talking about. The, the, his famous quote is, when playing a game, the goal is to win, but it is the goal that is important, not the winning. That's fabulous. Which is kind of oracular in a number of ways. But the, what I take that to mean, and I, I take it to mean what I think, so because naturally Reiner Kinsey agrees with me because he's a genius, and so I must be one too, is that the sort of, the, the way I would phrase it is sort of social compact that gets everyone together to play a game is that you're going to play to win. And very often, if you don't do that, things fall apart. If I start making random moves in a game, if I start making moves that deliberately help somebody else, it's like, oh, well, I'm playing with my significant other. I'm playing with my close friend. I want them to be happy. So clearly I should make them win, and I'll just do everything to benefit them. The game will often fall apart under those conditions. And what you're doing then is you're wasting everyone's time and you're ruining the event. And so, to a certain extent, there's a social compact. I've talked about this before, where everybody has to be on the same page and they have to play to win. But if you're focused on winning, if you're if you care about winning, if you internalize that too much as as your own goal for the evening, or or whatever event you happen to be having, then things can get toxic. And that's that's when I start having less fun. When anybody at the table, myself included, starts looking that way, starts starts looking at things that way. Does that make sense? One hundred percent. Okay, good. I'm glad we're on the same page, because very often it's presented the same thing. It's like, when I say, well, look, in order for the game to function, you have to play to win. Everyone's like, oh, why do you have to be so competitive about it? It's like, no, being competitive has nothing to do with it. This is just about the bare social contract that makes games possible, because a lot of games fail to operate at all if people aren't playing to win, let alone, quote-unquote, properly. That being said, it also puts, is a, what point of here, puts a stress test on the rules. Yes. Is this competitiveness is because people will strive to find, you know, new strategies, loopholes, ways to win when they're competitive. So it really does put the rule set because it has to be balanced. It has to be uh, a sense of fairness. 
it really and a sense of purpose, right? You have to have a purpose in the game, which like you said, is to win. So it really puts a hard stress on the rule set. And like you said, and if it doesn't have that that foundation, then it will fall apart. Absolutely, which is why some games that don't do this well some of my worst complaints about balance aren't even about things being overpowered. It's that when the smart play is the boring play. That was my problem with the Halifax Hammer thing in a, in a few acres of snow. That's my problem in a lot of miniatures games or a lot of games with lots of asymmetry. It's not that a certain tactic is overpowered. It's that smart play and the fun play are sometimes at odds. And that, to me, is just bad game design. Well, look, we didn't talk about Marco, our game of Marco Polo that we just played. Yes. Where where the game fell apart because there was a, a, a special ability mixed with a particular spot on the map that was easy to get to near the beginning. And those two things combined together made for the smart play and the completely unfun way. Yeah, and it was the first time we'd ever had that experience with Marco Polo for, for, for what it's worth. And the rest of us still had a fine time. It's just you were pumping this incredibly straightforward, incredibly power, powerful engine that the game presented to you. So yeah, that was, that was, that was a bit unfortunate. One of the things that I find most interesting, though, with respect to this, uh, to, to people being very competitive and having this this focus, is I've found it actually varies very much from group to group. I've talked before. I'm not. I'm, I'm hardly a world traveler, but I've spent a fair amount of time board gaming in in lots of different cities, and I have to say, quite to my surprise and my chagrin, that where I currently am, you you accept it. I'm not saying that this is true of you. People in Kingston are very very competitive in their out. And here's my barometer, and I don't know, you, you may think I'm being off base, but my barometer is as follows. I typically ask people after they're playing a game something along the lines of, how was it? How did it go? Did you like it? Something along those lines. And in past instances, before I moved to Kingston, I would get things like, I liked the game. It had this cool thing. I didn't like the game. It didn't have this thing. Whatever. Or, you know, I, I'm intrigued. Here, what I get is immediately they respond with whether or not they won. That is the first answer I always get in this town. And to me, that's a little chilling, to be honest. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I agree. Have you, have you had that experience? Not, I, can't, well, I might have, but it, it hasn't stood out to me. The worst instance for what it's worth that I ever had in terms of uh, being competitive, or at least the saddest thing that I ever heard, was uh, not in this city. It was somewhere else where someone was talking about Russian railroads and somebody else overheard that. Russian railroads is a, is a fine Euro game. And they said, oh, Russian Railroads, I love that game. I'm never going to play it again. And I said, well, what? Why? I said, well, last time I played it, I got beaten by a 12-year-old, so I'm never going to play that game again. And they weren't saying that their being beaten by a 12-year-old means that the game was badly designed or not, not well-balanced or anything like that. That would have been a diff different kind of claim, potentially strange. No, their claim was that they have such a sour association with the game that they're never going to go back to it even though they love it. And that seems desperately sad. That's bizarre. Yeah. What does competitiveness and competition lead to? So it leads to AP, right? Mm. Which is analysis paralysis. When someone's very competitive, they sit and they have to analyze every move. They want the best out of every action. They want the best possible action and or turn to get the most points. Have you ever read online strategy guides for a game? Never once. Yeah, me neither. I don't know why, though. I think it's... Well, I think it's, I think it's much like when you go back to to uh, magic and or Warhammer fantasy. The the fun of the game was building your deck. Never did I read any strategies in magic on how to build a deck. The fun of it was building it yourself. Same as when you, you know, built your fantasy. You never like looked online and said, oh, what's the best meta? Or it's like, it's like, oh, I want some of these. And, you know, the fun was building it. So the fun I find in board games is finding that strategy yourself, you know, is hitting a particular thing. It's like that rule seems a little odd. I can see where it's going to interact with this particular card in a weird way. I wanted to like concentrate on seeing if I can break that part of the game and get the most points out of it. Part of me thinks the reason why I don't enjoy doing it is it feels like a little bit more like work and a little bit like my agency is being, is being deprived. I'd rather just make the decision at the time of. Yeah, that's then study in advance. I have that as one of my last things. Does it does it eventually turn into work when you become overly competitive? Right. Well, we, we talked a little bit about this in context of Scythe. The board game barrage people were giving us a hard time, well, some of them were, about our liking Scythe, and they talked about the scripted openings. And our response was basically, yeah, sure, you can play Scythe, those scripted openings, if you want. I don't know why you'd want to play it that way. We don't play it that way. And it, it like, why why would you want to do that? That's one of the reasons why I don't play chess. Chess is, you know, you can play chess like a monkey. That's fine. But in order to get good at chess, you have to study openings and patterns. And that's just the way of the world. And I, not my not my bag. 
it was the same thing in Axe and Allies where we'd play Axe and Allies and when there was like a, a veteran at the table, they, they'd be like, oh, I can't believe you didn't do this move and this move first. And, you know, and it would totally change the game. And he, they had, they had no idea what they were, you know what I mean? Right. It took them out. Of, no, I shouldn't say out of the experience, but, you know, they had no idea what to do because the game was, you know, mature <laughs> in, 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 in a totally different way. And I, and that, that's what I love about board games actually. Yes, th- and that is the worst kind of competitive player that you play with. It's bad enough. I-, I start feeling bad in any game, no matter how well anyone is doing, when it becomes clear that someone else at the table has internalized the necessity of victory to what I take to be an unreasonable degree. Then I- it just starts feeling awkward, and I get I get very nervous because I'm very conflict-averse, being the good little middle-class Canadian that I am. But the competitive player who externalizes this and starts criticizing everyone else's play because they're not playing properly and the game state isn't evolving in the proper way. That's the most tiresome aspect of competitiveness that I've ever seen. We, we, we complain about this endlessly in the context of Puerto Rico. That was the classic Puerto Rico problem. The person like, Oh, you didn't select the right role. Now I'm screwed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other thing competitiveness does is it breaks the theme, right? It'll take players, right? You know, because you see this one player being hyper competitive, you know, all they're doing is spouting stats or whatever. All, all they're worried about is the points or whatever. And it totally takes you out of the situation or, you know, the theme that the game is creating. And it can therefore break the fun of the game as well. Not necessarily. I, I don't know. Sometimes I think being a little bit competitive might be more helpful for the theme. Let, let, me, let me talk about a specific anecdote because I, I wrote this down in preparation for this topic. And I would like you and the rest of the internet to judge me. Because I mean what I say when I say that, you know, a certain degree of competition makes the game possible. And there's a contract for you to play competitively to a certain extent, but not necessarily to internalize that competitiveness. And I also think that it's also a kind of a sign of respect. Like, you pull your punches against children. You pull your punches against the infirm. Well, at least when I'm involved in fistfights against children in the infirm, I pull my punches against them. But when I'm playing against a full rational adult, a friend, acquaintance, someone I've just met, someone I don't know, I'm not going to deliberately play suboptimally to coddle them because I think that's disrespectful. I sincerely do. I I genuinely believe that. So I was playing Cosmic Encounter. And I was playing with somebody that I had never met before, and things were going fine, and the game was about to end in a three-way shared win. This was a six-player game. And just before the game ended, I played a card so that it was going to be a two-way shared win, not a three-way shared win. So it was going to be me and somebody else rather than me, somebody else, and this new person. And I did it because... I'm, I'm still not 100% sure if I did the right thing. My justification was at the time that... And both of these parts I'm not sure about. Actually, one, the first part I'm less sure about. The first part that I'm less sure about is that there's a common consensus in the in the Cosmic Encounter community that a shared win with fewer players is more of a win than a shared win with more players. I would agree with that. Okay. Given that, I felt that subsequent to that, then I then had an obligation to deprive this person of their share of the win so as to improve my stake of the win by playing this card. Now, I didn't target them arbitrarily. I had two choices here about who to target in terms of depriving them of the win. I chose to target the person that I knew could retaliate less well. And so I played it against them. And I felt bad about it, despite the fact that I felt that I was kind of obliged to. They didn't take it well, and they were not receptive to my explanation, <laughs> which I respect. <laughs> Surprisingly. Which I respect. <laughs> and as I say, I'm still not 100% sure if I did the right thing, but you at least follow my logic. Yeah, 100%. Okay. But I think it, it, I would have just... Seen as you made the leap that you're going to reduce the number of, of players that were winning. Because everyone yes. everyone everyone knew that there was gonna be a three player win. Yes. And now you're now you're going to change that. Now so someone's gonna be bad. So as to improve so, my share of the victory. If so, I if so, now just a second, just, just a second, let me just okay. finish this. Okay, okay, okay. So you've already you've already, you know, made you've already turned to the dark side slightly. Right? <laughs> so so why go further? Why not say, okay, I've 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 turned the gauge down, let me just, you know, Go even on this now, and and me and the new player will win. Maybe it won't work. Maybe 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 this the other player will play the cards and to stop it. But at least you know I I didn't turn the dial down twice. Here's why: because if I targeted the player that had a better ability to retaliate, I might have cost myself the win. And at that point, I can't make recourse to the justification that I'm just maximizing my self interest. Because again, I'm just following the precept that maximizing your self-interest is your is in a very serious way. I mean this sincerely. Yeah. Is your moral responsibility in the context of the game your moral and social responsibility? Because otherwise, you're 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 well, undermining. This is exactly the premise the, of the, the game. The the argument that comes up in king making, right? Right. If just as 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 a, as a footnote, if I had not been involved in the three way win, 
and I played the card depriving somebody of, of, of the win to make it a two-person win, then I'm just king-making. Then I'm just like, well, I'm not going to win either way, but now the winners have... Now there's that would have just been king-making. That would have just been kicking dirt in the in, uh, sand in the gears for no particular reason. That, I thought, would have been arbitrary and unnecessary. I've, I've said my piece. I will I will stop defending myself. No, I agree. What were you about to say about king-making? No, that's just... That, that's it. You know, if as long as the move that you're about to make is going to get you legitimate points, even though it lets somebody else win... You just can't think about it. You just have to go ahead and do it and say, well, this is what I would normally do, regardless of what how it's going to affect the outcome of the game. I am still playing to advance my score the best I possibly can. So here's, here's a question for you, Walker. Do you think you have, in, in the context of a competitive game, not a co-op, do you have a sense about whether you're going to enjoy a game more if you win it on your first play or if you lose it on your first play? I don't. For me, it wouldn't matter. Okay. Because... Uh, I find it very interesting. A lot of people have very strong opinions about whether they enjoy it more if they win or lose in the first play. I'm of the, I enjoy it more if I lose the first time because then I feel like I have more to learn. This is be, this being said, if we're all learning it for the first time, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. If, if several people have played it a few times and this is my first time playing it and I win, then that makes me pause and think there are problems. Yeah. I'm I'm totally there with you. With uh, I, and I feel the same way with uh, co-op games for the uh, for the, the same reason. That's one of the reasons why I think we both like co-op games that are super hard. If you win it your first time, especially if there's not a whole lot of difficulty levels, what what yeah. what's left for you? Exactly, big issues. Yeah. All right. So one thing I want to talk about a bit is there are two statements that are made. I think when this subject comes up, and these two statements always rub me the wrong way. So the first one is it's just a game. Hmm. So someone gets mad or someone's competitive and someone will blurt out the word that it's it's just a game. And for whatever reason, that just rubs me the wrong way. Well, I think – so sometimes it's deployed – I think it's deployed in two different kinds of contexts. One of them is where someone is genuinely getting upset. And there I think it's just a game is A, entirely accurate, and B, not apt to be helpful. It's the equivalent of calm down. No one in the history of ever has ever calmed down when told to, to calm down. The appropriate response when you're losing your cool to being told to calm down is to scream in the other person's face. And that's just a general general attitude. Not that I necessarily do that all the time, every time. But the other the other context is when someone's like, well, I should go do this thing to maximize my self-interest in the context of this game. And says, oh, why are you doing it? It's just a game. It's like, well, I'm doing that because it's just a game. If it were real life, of course I wouldn't be attacking my neighbor <laughs> because it helps me. So, yeah, I know it's just a game. So yeah, I find that often it's deployed unhelpfully. And the other one is playing to win is fun. Playing to win is what makes playing possible so often. Like I, again, I don't understand. Is this used by people who are being hyper competitive to justify their hyper competitiveness? Or yes, exactly. Mm. Where they said, "Oh, we're just playing for fun." He's well, I, I, I think playing to win is fun. Yes, that's just it. There is a difference between the goal that you're working towards. And how and to what extent you've internalized that goal. And I, I, I think we're on the same page that it is important to internalize that you should play to win. But it's also important that you don't internalize it so that you get emotionally invested in playing to win. You should be emotionally invested in that the game work functionally, which sometimes involves being, which for the most part involves playing to win, but also involves, you know, chilling out. <laughs> so that being said... I really feel as though when I'm playing a game, unfortunately, I I play to make sure everyone else is having fun. I never I never make any concessions to make sure you know someone else is better having you know I don't take losses or anything. But you know I I I never think about uh, winning. I think about you know what is the most fun, most interesting. How is this other person going to react? Are they going to enjoy you know this experience? And that also being said, you have to make sure that is. You playing just for fun, making it unfun for other people. Are you doing, you know, you're not doing silly moves. You're not, you know, blowing the game out. You're not doing dumb things. That, that again, is an aspect that is so often underemphasized. If the, the negative toxic effects on game playing when people are not playing to win. Exactly. And I'm, I'm glad we both agree on this. And I hate the fact that the default presupposition is whenever I talk about these things, whenever I talk about the value of this, this is just me trying to get a better understanding of the structures that we're dealing with in in gameplay. And then there's the natural inference from this that I'm a super competitive individual when really I think it's fair to say I'm not. Sure. sure. If you keep saying it over and over again, Mark, I'm sure it'll come true. 
<sighs> I shouldn't have told you about that thing in Cosmic Encounter. I, <laughs> I again, I'm still not 100. Anyway, <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us for Silver Run. Oh, wait, Arcade. wait! I love the part where it says, you know, you got to pull your punches against the elderly, pull your punches against children and the infirm. So when you're having fist fights, you pull your punches against the infirm and children. Do you hear that, Grandma? We're coming for you. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Fight Club. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.